Hi, I'm Sam. I'm Andy. And this is Fall Risk. Uh, welcome back, listeners, to another episode of Fall Risk. Uh, this episode's going to be a wild one because I've got a very special, very incredibly talented and knowledgeable skydiver on the podcast today. Uh, we are joined by none other than Ale- or Andy Malchioti. That's how you say your last name, right? Yes, it is. Fantastic, Malchioti. I, I think I always mispronounce it. <laughs> you, you, were so concerned. <laughs> you were so concerned about the last name, you almost, almost messed up mispron- the first name. You, me- you messed up the easy part. Andy Malchioti. There we go. Uh, welcome. Thank you so much, man. I appreciate you being here. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Awesome yeah. to be here. First off, okay, it's very, very kind of you to be lending your time to this project. Um, I know you did episode or you did listen to that episode um, that I just dropped with Josh about the Echelon event. Um, I know there were a few things that you wanted to clarify right away, okay, about about some of the things that were said in that episode. Um, some of the things Josh t- touched on were more of guesses than they were factual information. Um, about times, dates, intentions, like behind the event itself, like when did when did Echelon start to begin with? As a brand, twenty eighteen. Okay. He was uh, reminiscing about an event that he came to a long time ago. Mm-hmm. I believe it was even as far back as two thousand nine, and during those years, I had what could be considered a precursor of Echelon and and it was an event series called the Elsinore Powwow. Okay. And my memory might not be perfect here either. It, it, I think it was that it could have been like a world record tryout camp or skills camp, not a skills camp, but a, a warm up camp. And, but, uh, but I do believe it was that Elsinore Powwow event because those were my invitational events during those years and I then didn't do I didn't organize any events of the like again until Echelon sort of was hatched okay what was the intention behind Echelon in part I have I'll call it a concern it's not a fear (laughs) but a concern about losing a passion for skydiving okay and if i don't have something to feed the passion i'm not saying it then would be lost but it certainly doesn't do it any favors okay if that if that makes sense and i was at a point in my skydiving career that i was ready to do another invitational series, but I needed it to have at least one, preferably several new wrinkles Mm -hmm. versus what we had been doing in the past. And I didn't care if it looked clicky. I was of the opinion, I was of the feeling, I want to just jump with my friends and who I want to jump with. And we're going to do this three, maybe four times a year. And I, if, if those jumps are going to progress, it needs to be a team training environment. It needs to be vast majority, the same people doing it. Okay. Event after event. We've accomplished that and sort of 
somewhat by design, somewhat by necessity and accident. The ratios are about 85, 90% the same people every time mm -hmm. or, or repeat, I should say repeat participants every okay. time. And then there's like 10% people who get a chance to participate for the first time, okay. which does have benefits. It does have value. It There is a lot to be said for you know, new blood coming through the pipeline and adding new energy and different energy and different dynamics. And that's great. And I didn't plan those ratios specifically, but as I sort of observe their practical effect, it's been really good because it, it does do the thing I knew we needed to do, which was have vast majority the same people so that a lot of the foundational stuff doesn't need to be re-explained every time. The philosophical stuff doesn't mm -hmm. need to be explained every time. There doesn't need to be like a rah-rah sort of pep rally about it. We're just a team getting together to do our thing. Uh, so that has worked out as intended. And then, like I said, somewhat by design, but much by necessity. Yeah, we have to integrate new people and, and that's been great. You know, those people, it, you know, it can't be just anybody. Obviously, it's not just the flying ability that I look for. Um, I want someone there who, if we get weathered for the entire weekend, is this somebody I want to hang out with? Mm -hmm. Is this someone that's going to lend good energy to the to the group? Yeah. And, and I feel like good choices have been made in that regard uh, this whole time. And and there have been events that got completely weathered and we mm -hmm. hang out, we do go-karts, we do movies, we do bowling, we do whatever we need to do to uh, pass the time and, and just enjoy each other's company in that, in that sense. Okay. Well, Hey, thank you for clearing those, uh, those details up. I really appreciate it. Um, we're we're hearing what like on that episode we heard one guy's experience about his very first uh instance at an event like that or or at that particular type of event um so it's it's always good to hear you know the clarifying points of like what the intention was and like you know what kind of event it's supposed to be um so that anybody else listening knows exactly what it is we're hearing so, yeah thank you. And, if, and if i could uh, and i'm only remembering this now this point i i think bears uh, clarifying is uh, Mike Carpenter was actually my co-founder of the yeah. event from 2018. And he's sort of phased himself out in recent times because he has a new career as a uh, California highway patrolman mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, two kids, wife, you know, very domestic. And that's what he wants. And that's what we want for him. Uh, so he comes typically one day of the event these days to do mm -hmm. some video and hang out and, you know, retain a connection to it, which is awesome. Um, but then we, I have phased in Matt Fry, uh, basically in that role, uh, which has been great because, uh, you know, Matt's awesome and he keeps me grounded and, uh, he's so smart and, um, <laughs> it was a great pleasure, uh, working with him on the, uh, last sequential world record, which, which I think we did was, yeah, that was the first event Matt and I did together. And then knowing where Mikey was going career-wise, it was just, you know, made perfect sense to phase Matt in, in that role. Yeah. And so that's been the case uh, now for a year and a half, maybe. 
something like that. Okay, cool. Yeah. I can't wait to see the 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 outcome of the next event. Um, the the footage in the in the video that I saw, like mind blowingly cool. <laughs> uh, Thank very, you. Very very in awe of, of some of the ideas that went into um that that particular event, the one the one I just saw. But um, I'm super stoked to see what what happens next with it, or where it goes, or how it evolves. So. Yeah, me too. Because <laughs> the, the path isn't obvious, you know, it's uh, yeah. it's always a question. It's uh, where do we want to go from here? What's practical? What's safe? Yeah. Uh, and yeah, and then we answer those questions and mold an idea around that. Um, switching gears a little bit, uh, there are quite a few uh, relatively new listeners or listener. Uh, relatively new skydivers that listen to this podcast um people from back home like i'm at skydive midwest right now uh for the summer and i actually come from the other side of the state in wisconsin so there's quite a few newer jumpers that i had connections with back home who listen to this podcast so for them for the people that don't know i think it's important to establish some uh, some street cred right now sure. in this in this instance okay um so for anyone that doesn't know i feel i think there's a fair amount of jumpers from newer generations who probably don't have a good expectation of where you come from how long you've been in the sport and i think it's important to set the stage appropriately for them okay sure. uh, so i would love to hear a little bit more about what year you started skydiving how old you were like how many jumps you've accumulated in that time uh ratings tunnel time the works okay uh, I did my first jump in 1996, which was a tandem and at skydive Miami in Homestead, okay. Florida. I always wanted to skydive. Uh, I was that kind of kid and I looked forward to a time that I could, you know, <laughs> sign away my rights. <laughs> Cause yeah. I think that is the, uh, the, uh, distinction as, as to why parents can't uh, sign for a minor to skydive. Not that my mom ever would, but <laughs> I did turn 18 and I made that tandem skydive and okay. that sort of scratched the itch. I didn't really, I mean, it was a, at the time skydive Miami was a tandem drop zone, a 182 drop zone. And so I didn't observe any recreational jumpers. Obviously they must exist. I, I, and I, I get, when I get this question, I'm like, I don't know why I, it didn't occur to me that I would want to skydive on my own, but for whatever reason, the tandem did all the work to scratch the itch. And for the next four years, I didn't really think about skydiving. I mm -hmm. uh, went to the university of central Florida from 96 to 2001 and got a degree from that institution. And right around the time I was about to graduate. I had a friend and I don't remember how the topic came up, but he talked about how he had learned how to skydive and he had made 12 skydives. And I was like, oh my God, 12 <laughs> skydives? Like that's an astronomical number of skydives. And uh, so this was intriguing and I continued to ask questions and um, I don't remember where he did those 12 skydives, but he said he was considering going back to resume jumping because he was uncurrent at that point. And obviously, well, at that point, he might have had an A license because you only needed eight jumps before you were kicked out of the nest to go <laughs> do your own thing. Uh, this was the year uh, 2000. So 
I said, man, if you go back, I'd love to join you, you know? And he's like, okay, let's, let's, let's do that. And I told my, my uh, best friend Shane this story and he wanted in. Uh, so Jerry is the name of the other gentleman. And uh, he kept kind of flicking and wouldn't, you know, commit. And finally Shane and I were just like, oh, let's just go without him. So he and I went to Skydive Space Center in October of 2000. That's in Titusville, Florida, Mm -hmm. and began AFF in October of 2000. And I uh, sort of quickly ripped through AFF. And like I said, it only took eight jumps in those years to get your A license. Uh, That's wild. yeah, I know. Thinking back, it's like, man, how did how did anyone survive <laughs> jump eight to twenty? Uh, and so I moved to California in October of two thousand one. So in that year, I think I did like eighty jumps my first year. Okay. And, and moved to California in yeah October two thousand one, like I said, and I was a recreational, passionate fun jumper from two thousand one to 2004 uh living in los angeles during those years and sort of it was equidistant between paris elsinore and uh, california city which isn't a drop zone anymore in california city had the nicest people i had ever met in skydiving uh, but it just wasn't terribly progressive there wasn't a lot going on um ton going on at paris but i kind of got lost in the mix and it it Mm -hmm. felt kind of conveyor belty and and Elsinore was sort of the best of both worlds. So I, you know, planted my flag in Elsinore, uh, just fun jumping up through 2000, 2006, really. But I did move to Elsinore in 2004. I bought a house okay. in Elsinore in 2004. Same house I'm in right now. Uh, cool. So I've been here almost 20 years in this house. And uh, 2006, I had the opportunity to take over the free fly school from uh, my mentor who taught me all my foundational free fly knowledge in 2006. I I was uh, the obvious choice to sort of take over that from him when he uh, didn't want to do it anymore. And so I did that and that was sort so I was just, you know, professional free fly coach from 2006 to 2008 and, you know, had, had my first sponsorship at a drop zone so i was just i don't know how many jumps i did between 2006 and 8 but it was probably in the you know probably 3000 jumps or something across those two years and um i got my af uh, yeah i know i got my tandem rating first in 2008 um i probably should have mentioned i did my first free fly team in 2004 and 2005 and 2006 was the beginning of vfs and i did a pickup team in BFS in 2006. And and I did a sort of train team, 60 jumps in 2007 BFS. Tandem rating in 2008, AFF rating in 2009. Did uh, the SoCal Converge free fly team from 2008 to 2012. And we had a lot of success with that. Success with that. We won a world championship in 2010, the silver medal in 2012. And I did a player coach free fly team in 2013. And then I focused on MFS ever since in 2000, since 2014. Um, and now I, and I've worked around the world as, you know, as a load organizer, event organizer, 
done some tandems in AFF around the world as well. And recent in recent years, I've put more uh, effort and work into into uh, uh, military jobs, and that's kind of been more the focus. Uh, the occasional production job still comes my way, which is nice. And in all that time, I've I've accumulated just under seventeen thousand jumps now, and uh, tunnel time. I have about. 240 hours which isn't a lot versus everything else i've done how much of that, that counts training? i i had i don't have it broken down like that okay. i just keep a running total so All that's right. everything that's okay. that's coaching team training instructing whatever you if, I, if i'm in the wind i count it <laughs> okay fair enough yeah All right. that's I, I think that covered all your questions yeah uh, no if it, it, covered, if it didn't it, let me know it covered everything. Thank you. Um, what initially made you want to do it? Stick with it. Just jumping in general. Yeah. It's just been a case of every crossroads I've hit in life where the fork in the road leads to more jumping in one direction and less jumping than in the other direction. I, I just have always chose more jumping and, you know, now that's literally not necessarily true, but it's still true in the sense of skydiving's my focus you know okay and as i you know i'm 45 years old now i just turned 45 and so it's like how do i make less jumps but make more money <laughs> you know yeah. so it's kind of it's uh that's a question i ask myself uh, these days uh but of course was not really necessary to ask yourself that question in your 20s and 30s because you just want to jump all the time <laughs> mm -hmm. fair. that's that's fair um i met you once you wouldn't remember this. I, I met you once uh, around, had to have been in like 2014 or 2015 at a UPT angle event at Skydive Arizona. Um, you were our coach for the day. Uh, it was like a three-day event. And I think the second day we, our group, our group had you as the, uh, as the um, coach organizer. Um, but that's the only time we've ever been in the same place at the same time. As far as I know, <laughs> um, most of what I, I, heard, I, I heard you, I heard you say that to Josh and I was trying to remember because yeah. I, Sorry. <laughs> I, I do remember that event, but I, I remember, I don't remember the groups I had. Sorry. So, yeah. <laughs> it's okay. It was an intermediate group. Like we were, it, I think like, like I said to Josh, the name of the game was like, just go as fast as you fucking can. <laughs> it was like, it was, it was probably some of the steepest, uh, fastest jumps I'd ever been on up until that point. Um, and I remember looking at the friend that I was with his name, we call him stunts. Uh, after after that day was done when we went on to the next day and i think we had i can't remember who we had the next day but it was somebody who had like really dialed back the speed and we were exactly where we needed to be every single jump that 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 next day it was like night and day difference so we learned a lot and it was crazy but uh it was definitely hard like that that day actually i think one of my facebook profile pictures must be a still from from one of the uh, I'll look it up later. Uh, but anyway, yes, it was a very cool event. It was the only time I think you and I have ever been at the same same place at the same time. Um, but that being said, most of what I know about you as a skydiver, as about or as a as a leader in this industry, like most of what I know comes from other skydivers telling stories about their adventures and their travels and their interactions with you, like whether it's competition, events, organizing, 
etc. Um, all the stories are really colorful and very exciting. Um, and they all have a really similar theme where they describe a really talented skydiver. Um, but honestly, I would rather hear more in your words about what kind of accomplishments you've accumulated over your career as a skydiver, like the stuff that's important to you, if that makes sense. It's all important. Yeah. I don't always hear, well, I guess I wouldn't, you know, I was going to say, I don't always hear the stories you're referring to, but I guess, <laughs> you know, why would I, why would I, uh, but it, it is nice when someone tells me like, oh, hey, you know, this coaching you gave me was super helpful and it helped me do X, Y, and Z, or this thing you said really inspired me to, you know, whatever, like, like that's, that's bigger than me, which is the best thing, you know, like it, it, it's a, it's a gift to do something in a self-service that other people also can gain inspiration from Does that make sense oh yeah absolutely. like I'm, I'm just out here i'm just out here trying to win the game you know like i'm just out <laughs> here team training trying to be the best i can be and go win a gold medal in an obscure sport that nobody cares about you know <laughs> if if in so doing other people can just like watch what i'm doing and hear about how i'm doing it and that's bettering their lives in some way then that's amazing you know like that's the most mutually beneficial cool thing i can imagine because it, I, I guess it's just the incentives are aligned that's so important in every facet of life i feel like um and if if, if the incentives are aligned for me to be the best competitor the best organizer i, I can be and i'm delivering a good product to people it's helping them be better skydivers, or dare I say, better people in some instances than awesome. Um, you mentioned this term when we were prepping for this episode, um, but I was wondering if you would clarify clarify what it is for me, okay? Um, the triangle of progression, what is that? Oh, yeah. So when I'm asked the question, like, I want to do what you do, or I want to be champion in this discipline like how do i structure my life basically like to make it possible okay and so i i came up with this <laughs> concept called the triangle of progression where on one side you have time on one side you have money and and one side you have sacrifice because the question is always well let me back up the answer to that question if money was no object would be like, well, what do you mean? Like come out and jump every day and get a teammate and go win. What, what's the problem? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? yeah. But obviously not everyone has unlimited funds. Mm -hmm. Not everyone has unlimited time. Most people, or, you know, I shouldn't say most people, but the sacrifice, the sacrificial portion of the triangle progression is the thing you probably have the most control over yeah. and you can, and you can make the necessary changes to achieve the goal. Mm -hmm. So of the three, you really need two. If you have time and you have money, then you don't need to sacrifice much. Mm -hmm. you know, that's, that's, that's going to be easy. Good for you. 
if you have money, but you don't have a lot of time, then that's not bad either, because that means you just got to sacrifice, you know, that you're not going to do anything else because you got to focus and you got to funnel it all into one week or or whatever the case may be. Like, that's not, that's pretty easy. It's when you don't have the money. (laughs) If you don't have money, but you do have time and you're willing to sacrifice, cool. Well, see that little alley behind the bathrooms at the drop zone? Like, that's where you live now. (laughs) Go, go, Go pitch your tent over there and talk to the DZO about what sort of chores you can do around the property to earn some jumps in that. Because now, since you probably quit your job or you don't live in your apartment anymore, so you don't have to make that much money for rent, now you got time. You don't need so much money, but you're sacrificing a lot potentially yeah. to to reach this goal. So it's not a, you know, it's not a perfect system, but it definitely gets people's gears moving in a healthy way okay. to determine whether their goal is a possible or practical one. I don't know if you've read Dan BC's book above all else. He, a long time ago. Yeah, me too. He he allowed us to read it before it was published in 2010 when we were training for the world meet. Okay. Because he thought it would be so valuable to us and it was, and it was awesome. But I always, uh, I, I retain what he says in the book, which is question one, is it possible? Yep. <laughs> you know, because you have to be real, you know, I'm from Miami, Miami Dolphins are my football team. As much as I want to be a star running back on the Miami Dolphins football team next year, it's not going to happen. Right? Yeah. Like, that's that's not possible. Uh, so yeah, you have to be humble and ask that question first. But if it is, then the next question becomes, well, what are you willing to sacrifice to make it happen? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and even if you do have the money and time, like there will be an answer to that question. Something will have to be sacrificed. Maybe it's not. The same thing that the guy who has to live behind the bathrooms has to sacrifice, but <laughs> but it'll be something. So so that's it. That's 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 what I refer to as the triangle of progression. So when the question yeah. is posed, uh, how do I get from A to B? And there's a long journey in between. You consult the triangle of progression, and if, if it doesn't lead you directly to an answer, it gets it gets the brain working in such a way that hopefully you, you get there. Yeah, it sounds like a a concept you could apply to pretty much any area of skydiving too as well, depending on what your goal is. Sure, of course. Yeah, not necessarily just a competitive, you know, competitive. No, no, no. I I didn't mean to suggest it was uh, exclusive to competition. Uh, okay. What what you say is absolutely right. I mean, and and outside of skydiving too, you know, any goal. And you and you that so I didn't want to assume. I didn't want to assume that this was your brainchild or this is something that you coined. Um, but that this is your like this is a concept that you developed on your own and you use you use oh uh, like, yeah I, I conversations. I definitely coined it the triangle of progression. I okay. don't recall if it was my original idea or not. I, I, I think it was I think it was. Okay. All right. <laughs> but I def- but it definitely wasn't called that if, if if I picked it up somewhere else. So that's what I called it. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. So to kind of segue into this, like this is a great model to kind of use to kind of calculate your own capabilities uh in terms of competition, right? Not just for competition, but but can be used very, very usefully, I think, uh, for a lot of people who are either looking in looking to get into it or to 
level up in terms of competition. Let's talk about that for a minute. Um, Cause I know that competition has consumed your focus while jumping. Like I've heard all the stories from tons and tons of other, of your competitors um, about how many different disciplines you've competed in um, over the years. Like, can you talk about a few of those? I know you mentioned VFS and MFS, but has there been anything else in your competition history that's notable or that somebody that you the, like me should know about? Artistic free flow came first. Okay. That was 2004, 5, 8, 9, 10, 12, and 13. Okay. Is on that three different teams? That's still a category, right? That people can compete in? Sadly, yes. I joke. <laughs> <laughs> I joke. Just because I'm so disenchanted with it. But uh, but yes, it is. Okay. All right. Uh, which of the ones that you participated in, which ones are your favorites? I think I might know the answer to this already, but I, I have to ask anyway. Well, if you're going to ask, if we're going to talk about the formation of MFS as a discipline. We are going to talk about that later. Got a whole I section can, here. I can I can sort of blend, merge those two answers, if that's okay. okay. Sure. So, so there are seven rounds for an artistic free flight competition, five of which you're doing a routine that you come up with that is akin to a gymnastics floor routine or a ice skating routine. Okay. Judge technicality, presentation, et cetera. But two of the rounds are considered what are, are, are what are known as the compulsory rounds. Mm -hmm. In the very beginning, they were artistic compulsories, meaning here's your five artistic moves and you're going to string them together and form a routine around them. In 2000, from 2003 to 2010, those two compulsory rounds were replaced with what was essentially MFS. Okay. But the dive pool was only 10 randoms, meaning 10 formations. You did five in one round, you did five in the other round. Mm -hmm. Your score in an artistic competition is only one through 10. So that's very intuitive for the artistic round. It's not so intuitive for a compulsory round that looks exactly like an MFS round, because what if you get more than 10 points? Mm -hmm. The answer was this mathematical algorithm that your raw score was put into, and it spit out a number between one and 10. Okay. And it wasn't linear. I, I can't, and what I mean by that is it's not as if if you scored two points, you got two points up to 10, and then it changed. If you got 13 raw points, you then got, you know, eight or nine. It it became increasingly more difficult to get to 10. Mm -hmm. I'll stop there because it gets into the weeds a little bit, but it will become important in a minute. Okay. So anyway. I didn't know it any other way because I started competing in 2004. That was my first artistic free flight team. And that's just how the rules were explained to me. And I say, okay. But I came to find that I enjoyed those rounds more than anything else. And that feeling continued on the next free flight team I did 
which is the one that won the world championship in 2010, we just loved those speed rounds, AKA compulsory rounds. Mm -hmm. We, we made a strategic decision that we were going to annihilate those rounds because we didn't know if the judges were going to like our free round. And that's a big deal because you can spend the majority of your time working on this routine. And if they don't like it, you're like, well, that sucks. (laughs) And there's nothing you can do about it. Right. So in order to hedge our bets, you might say, we determined we were going to just spend a lot of time on these speed rounds. We're going to break world records with these speed rounds. And we know we'll have a score close to a 10 in rounds two and five, which were the compulsory rounds. Mm -hmm. That's a big deal because if you've ever, if you go back in the archives and you look at the discrepancy between the first, second, and third place team on the free rounds, Mm -hmm. it's usually graded on a curve, so to speak. The gulf between the first and third place team will be somewhat in the context of that competition. Okay. That makes sense? Yeah. And the delta is typically pretty tight. And most of the time, people wouldn't agree with it. And what I mean by that is, let's say the first place team is averaging like a nine. Mm-hmm. And you think, you think, all right, that's fair. I can see that routine being a nine. And the second place team is getting averages like an 8.8. And you're like, I don't know, man, if that's a nine, I don't think that's an 8.8. That seems somewhat somewhere less than that. Mm -hmm. And then that, that effect continues as you go down third place team, they got an 8.6. You're like, man, that's like a five, (laughs) you know, but because they just tend to clump them together and grade it on a curve, it could go the other direction too. Maybe the, maybe the lowest place team is a five and you're like, yeah, that's fair. Mm -hmm. But then the silver place team's got a, Six, you're like, I don't know, man, that's a little bit better than a six. Yeah. First place team's got like a seven. You're like, man, that's that was awesome. That be better. It, it could go either way. Mm-hmm. So if that's the case, and you have a delta of like a point max, a point's like a lot. Mm-hmm. But then you say, man, what if in rounds two and five, we could annihilate the competition by like four points? <laughs> and we get an eight point differential across rounds two and five yeah we could we could lose every other round as long as long as it's only by a point right Mm -hmm. we could lose round one by a point round two round three by a point round four by a point and we could still win like handily that's very strategic (laughs) yeah so this was our thought we set our first world record in 2008 at u.s nationals i think it was 18 points so we loved those speed rounds because it was we enjoyed doing them we sort of credit our world championship on performing those so well but at the end of that year in the competitors meeting the option was discussed to return to what it was in the very beginning which was the artistic compulsories Mm -hmm. which everyone was in favor of except us we were like the dissenting, the sole dissenting voices. 
for all the reasons I just explained. Because I, th I thought of it as a, a leveler, a, 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 a means to hedge your bets against judges not liking your routine. And I thought it contributed to risk-taking and creativity mm -hmm. that, that the sport needed to mm -hmm. continue to evolve. If every team is just playing at super safe because they're giving the judges what they think they like, and the judges are out to lunch, like that's a whole other rabbit hole we could go down. But uh, they're not Scott Evers for the most part. Some of them are, and some of them are good. I don't, I don't mean to suggest this across the board, but plenty of them, if they jump at all, it's been decades. They have no appreciation of what yeah. is technical and what is difficult. And, and these are the people that are judging you. And yep. if there's a, if there's a way to level that bias by having this small element of what is formation skydiving within an artistic discipline, I was for it. We were for it for all those reasons. Mm -hmm. But we were in the in the minority. We like I said, we were the only ones that felt that way. So starting in 2011, the old style returned. Okay. And we and we only did the one cycle in 2012. Uh, doing those artistic compulsories and and it was what it was you know it wasn't my preference um but we did it and then after that competition i turned my attention to creating mfs as its own discipline because i missed those i didn't like seeing them go away and if they weren't going to be present anywhere else in comp in us national skydiving competition then I said, well, okay, I'm just going to package this thing up and do what needs to be done to get it integrated into our U.S. Nationals as its own event. So, you know, and I oftentimes I'm credited as the, the creator of MFS and I don't not comfortable with that because it, it certainly wasn't just me. It was uh, uh, my current teammate, Jason Peters, who had been doing the gauntlet tunnel competition in Eloy, mm -hmm. all the years of having those compulsories in the free fly dive pool. Mm -hmm. And it was the beginning of the IBA tunnel dive pool. I called on all those things. And I was, you know, I, I sought the counsel of others in the sport. And, it, and I felt like it was a very collective effort. So I might be the one that delivered the package to USPA and sort of aggregated everything and did a lot of the legwork, but, but certainly it wasn't me alone. Uh, and that's how we did it. So I, we constructed the dive pool in a way that we thought uh, made the most sense. Started as a six round meet, did a series of regional test events, and then had the first test event at US Nationals in 2013 which was a smashing success. And then it had its first official year in 2014. That's wild. That and is... it's been And it's been wildly popular ever yeah. since. Way more popular than almost every other di discipline, minus uh, four-way, of course. Yeah, that is, that's crazy. I don't know that I've ever heard that story, to be honest, um, about how this discipline came to be a competitive you know, a comp a competition level discipline um for this entire community of of skydivers. Uh 
so it so it it really is just derived directly from artistic like artistic free flying competition like from from the compulsory side of it not the uh correct right not so the dancing essentially yeah not, not the dancing <laughs> um, yeah the uh the argument to return to the artistic compulsories was that formation skydiving had no place in an artistic discipline mm-hmm. and i understand that argument you've heard i don't argument. know if i agree with that you know? to be honest uh, agree or not i get it I, I get where they're coming from uh but i thought my argument was strong in the sense that my argument incentivizes risk-taking and incentivizes experimentation and progression within the free routine mm -hmm. because you have a means you have a, a a relief valve so to speak to guard against the judges not liking your experimentation yeah and if you don't have that then it then it stagnates in my opinion and i would you know we don't get to see the counterfactual you know so you can't look at the routines of today and see see i told you so because you know we don't know what it would look like otherwise but mm -hmm. in any event i was done with that discipline regardless and so i probably you know i don't know if i would have had as much motivation without that catalyst but it probably i probably would have done it anyway uh, and here we are it's uh doing really well and it would be great if other countries would pick up the mantle so that it can make its way to the international stage because as of now it is still pretty much exclusively a u.s phenomenon why is that well a lot of countries have to just do what the ipc wants in the ipc i think they've recently actually changed branding but for the sake of this conversation i'll probably just keep referring to them as the ipc because they're the international governing body um okay first kind of in competitions and it's a it's a it's a chicken and egg scenario because smaller countries that want to represent at the world meet and the world cup they don't want their athletes spending energy on something that doesn't exist at those events mm -hmm. i had a conversation if it's okay to tell this story i'll try to keep it brief uh the 2018 um indoor world cup or world championship in montreal i was doing the broadcast and i took that opportunity to uh speak with one of the formation skydiving controllers for for the ipc i wanted to dispel them of an of an idea i knew they either created for themselves or someone had planted in their brains but it was wrong and that was that mfs was somehow a jv vfs <laughs> that it was that it was strictly a stepping stone to VFS, and as <laughs> such, and as such, it had no place at the uh, at the world meet. <laughs> so I so I brought Jason Russell with me <laughs> to sort of back me up as you know one of the one of the best VFS competitors in the world. Uh, yeah. You know, to confirm that I wasn't just blowing smoke and that indeed MFS. Uh, had its own identity, which is tricky because it can be used for that if that's what you want. You mm -hmm. know, if you want to do VFS, but you're learning and yeah, then MFS can be a great stepping stone, but it also has its own identity 
in its own direction. So my question to him was, hey, we, we would love to see this make its way to the world meet. Should it be a grassroots bottom-up approach around the world? Or would the IPC ever say, hey, we're doing this now? Okay. And he said unequivocally that it needed to be a grassroots approach, which is fine. All things being equal, I think that is better. But it's a big ask, you know, even if someone is intrigued by the videos we post or whatever, they think it's a great idea. Oh, and they reach out and like, oh, I want to help. What can I do? It's like, yeah, okay, awesome. Well, here's what you got to do. You got to put on a series of test events in your country, take it to your federation. You're going to do a test event at your nationals. Uh, if you can train with a team and have a team, that'd be great. And it's like, all of a sudden it's like, whoa, hey buddy, I got a job. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a lot of, it's, it's a lot of work. So I get it. And it's, it's very, it's a helpless feeling for me because uh, I can't do it myself, you know, like, uh, so it's, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty helpless feeling wanting it to make its way there, but knowing, and it's not just one person, you know, you need yeah. many people from many countries to take it up. Uh, and it has to be like the bigger countries, you know, mm -hmm. for every big, for every big country, you need to replace that with two smaller countries. It's, it's a whole political thing too. So it's frustrating and it's, uh, it's, uh, I, I, I wish it were different. I can, I mean, I can only imagine like how, how absolutely frustrate, frustrating that can, that, that has to be MFS in, I mean, in my very limited opinion or uh, not opinion, uh, very limited experience with this particular discipline. It seems like it's one of the most complex, hard, like most difficult, like disciplines that are out there at the moment. Um, in that you have to be good at all the things in order to be able to be competitive in, in any in any sense in this discipline. I can't believe that so many other people would be so opposed to having a discipline like that out there. Uh, it, it's it's mind-boggling a bit. I don't think it's opposition. It's just inertia. Okay. It's just, it's just people don't, people are lazy. <laughs> I don't I don't know. <laughs> okay. I don't, I don't know. I don't know a better way to chalk it up, but it's like, oh, we, you want us to introduce a whole new discipline. Oh, that's going to be some work. You know, like, I don't know. Maybe <laughs> that's you, me just, maybe that's me just being jaded, but. Do uh, you have any, any uh, information on when VFS became a uh, competitive discipline, like worldwide? Do you have any information about that? Yeah, I sort of know that answer um are you are you alluding to like following that path kind of thing yeah i'm just curious like how how long it's taken to get other uh more i don't want to say modern but more of the events that are have recently become yeah i know that there are some wingsuit disciplines and there's some other things that are vying for the attention of getting into the world meet. It's not just MFS. Okay. So, you know, I don't want to sit here and pretend I know all the factors that they're up against because I don't, but I know that VFS isn't terribly well attended at the world meet. 
And here's a discipline that you can do out of a small plane with just two other people. It's very, you know, uh, I don't know what the right word is, durable in that sense. Uh, even if you don't have a camera person to start with, no problem. You know, like you can sort yourself out for a while before really needing a camera person. Mm -hmm. So there's just a lot of benefits. And, you, and the, the uh, barrier of entry is super low. You know, like if you watch flight shop videos, you're like, oh my God, like I could never do that. And, and that's okay, but you don't have to do that. You can do the most basic belly back points mm -hmm. for starters. Someone fresh off their A license can go do the belly points, you know, yep. and learn a lot. And you learn a lot, you get a little bit better. Somebody goes to the tunnel, now they know how to backfly. And then you can start doing the belly back points. Mm -hmm. Keep doing that. You know, it, I always tell people if you don't have a goal, like Scott, I mean, it's not going to be interesting for very long. Going back to what I said about Echelon, it's like I'm, I'm always mindful of like, do I have a goal right now? Because if I don't, mm -hmm. <laughs> I might get disinterested. And that that scares me because I, I don't know, what did I say before? It concerns me. Yeah. <laughs> because I, because I, uh, I always want to skydive, but yeah. I know that if I'm not getting some fulfillment and satisfaction from a goal, it's just not going to be interesting. So anyway, uh, the point I wanted to make here and about low barrier of entry to MFS is like, you can suggest a goal to someone immediately. Because mm -hmm. that's probably a big source of attrition with younger jumpers. It's like they just don't know what's available. They have no path. They have no knowledge. No one's explaining to them what is what they can do now. Yeah. And it's like, here's here, this discipline. You can work towards getting to the most advanced levels if you're interested in that. But for now, do these handful of points. It'll keep you busy for the next hundred jumps. And if that person can find another person that they're matched up with skills-wise, like, you know, athleticism-wise, I mean, financially, and I always, that's my other common piece of advice to young jumpers is like, if you can find that person, like hang on to that person, like grim death and just do two ways every weekend. Okay. Because that's going to create the best learning curve for you. It takes the guesswork out of what are we going to do at the drop zone this weekend? Mm -hmm. and it's just going to keep you interested and the goals just compound on each other which is a good thing you successfully do these belly points you're like oh that was fun what's next well next is the belly back points well yep. i don't know how to backfly okay well i better learn how to backfly that's my next goal and it, it's you know, it just it never ends yeah <laughs> uh so that's a good thing why was it only ever constructed for two flyers? This as a discipline. Well, the first answer is its origins because it came okay. from the free fly dive pool. If you're going to ask why isn't it four-way MFS? I was just curious. It's, it's just a, I, that, that's a possibility in the future. I wouldn't discount that possibility, but 
the world's not ready for it yet. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, okay. I mean, in terms of accessibility, you know, I think I think that's the word you were searching for earlier. Like, you need a small plane. It requires three people, you know, on a team in order to make it happen. Like, it's a lot easier to form a two-person or a three-person team instead of a five-person team. Um, it's a lot easier to get two people or three people to throw down all the money and the time and the training required for that. You know, um, I think I think two-way overall would be more accessible than four-way. Four you know for obvious reasons uh yeah that's that's all super interesting I've never heard that story before I've never heard someone talk about it at great length like that so that's a lot of new information to kind of ruminate on um I guess one of the major questions that popped into my brain is for someone who's in a community where there are no, there's no leadership in this particular discipline and there's no uh person offering the sage advice like where can someone like that go more information uh, we post, about this discipline. We have our flight shop MFS Facebook page. Um, it's fairly dormant in the off season, but during the training season, we're trying to post things all the time, uh, okay. video tutorials. So that you can go there to interact and to see what we're posting. But okay. a lot of newer jumpers are unaware of what the skydiving competition manual even is they know what the sim is they know what mm -hmm. the skydivers information manual is well the skydivers competition manual is just another handbook okay and that's where you can go to see the pictures of the formations and the, learn the rules mm -hmm. and all that stuff so um for the first time ever i saw all of the, like the entire breakdown for all the msf mfs points um it's so Skydive Midwest is really great in that they have all these big, um, big pictures that are framed um, hanging in the hangar. Uh, and it has the breakdown of all these different uh, these different um, points, like step by step by step for all the different classes, too, as well, or categories, um, categories, classes. Which one? What are they? Uh, yeah, classes, classes, o open um, class, advanced yeah. class. Yep. So it has the breakdown and of. Uh, all those sections. I've never seen one for MFS before. I've only ever seen uh, the belly and the, the VFS uh, dive pools, essentially. And I was looking at it just dumbfounded that I'd never heard of some of these, like some of these points before. I was like, oh, wow, <laughs> like this is nuts. So that's that's what you're talking about is stuff like that, right? Like the, the resources that are available online somewhere, I assume. Yeah, I mean, I think your question was, where can people go? And, yeah. you know, those two places will occupy some hours for okay. sure. Uh, so you go to the competition manual just to learn the rules, to see the points, and then you okay. can join our Facebook uh, group and uh, get into the weeds a little bit. I'm probably going to uh, tag that in the show notes when this episode Perfect. drops. Um, I'll probably ask you for that link so that people can can visit as they mm -hmm. as they like. Wow, that is nuts. I'm I'm a little dumbfounded with all that information. Like that's I'm gonna go back and listen to this episode again to 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 re-listen through uh that explanation or that that story. Um I'm probably also gonna have more questions later on after I can ruminate on it a little bit. But sure. that was that was wild. That's a wild origin story. All right. Um we're gonna switch gears for just a second. Uh 
you gave me a list of some things that you would want to talk about or things that you felt felt good about talking about. But this this is something that I am very interested in, but was not on the list. So we're going to talk about the movie. Can we talk about the movie? Is that okay? Oh my God, you're, you're ambushing me? No. Sorry. Yes, of course. Of course we can talk about the movie. <laughs> so we're talking about Hex. Hex the movie. Um, what? When did you start working on this project? Um, hold on. I have, a, I have an answer. <laughs> May 2013. Okay. I knew it was a while ago, but I wasn't, I was like, I don't want to drop a, drop a, uh, a date and be completely wrong about it. Um, true or false? It was crowdfunded. The post-production to finish the post-production was crowdfunded. Okay. But we did it. So it, it was many, many years after we started well after we had finished shooting the movie but we needed to do the crowdfund to sort of uh square all the circles financially and otherwise to to get it across the finish line okay as a creative person who enjoys making short films of my own um nothing on this level for obvious obvious reasons money time you know all, all the works. Uh, but as a creative person, it's a ton of fun to hear the behind the scenes story of like how a project like this gets made. Um, how did you guys come up with this idea? And at what point did you guys say we're doing it? Like we're gonna, we're gonna go full send on this project. Oh man. Well, for sure. Like you, like you, like we spoke of in our messages, like this could definitely be a standalone podcast. Mm -hmm. So well, I will answer it comprehensively and if you want to end up splitting this up or however <laughs> um so my co-producer co-director uh chris johnston is his name also my uh original free fly teammate in mm -hmm. 2004 and 2005 he had a 20-year career in uh post-production in sound and he had taken basically a uh What's it called when you like take a break from your job, but you're maybe going to return later? Uh, not a not a hiatus, but a uh, no. It's a, a sabbatical. 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 Yes. <laughs> yeah. yes. He's pretty much on a permanent sabbatical from his from that career that he had for twenty years. So he had assisted me with several of my short film ideas, and I had a like a like a jackass style DVD I released in 2006. Uh, he, he had helped me with, with all that. And he, he's super creative, a super smart guy. And uh, so we were traveling to the bridge in Idaho to do some base jumping one weekend. And we flew into Salt Lake and he was itching for a project or something to really a goal. Like we've kind of been touching on throughout this conversation. He needed a goal. And as we quickly took inventory of his newly available time, in that moment, I had a lot of available time as well. Our collective networks, skill sets, et cetera, we recognized that we could and we should make a feature length movie at this time. Mm -hmm. And he got so excited about it, he pretty much his wife Bethany and, and myself we couldn't get a word in edgewise all the way from Salt Lake to to the Perrine um but it 
But everything he was saying made sense and we were uh, all enjoying the excitement of it. And we got back from that trip. He started mapping out the business end of things, spreadsheets, et cetera. And we wanted to involve his childhood best friend, uh, Hans Rodionoff is his name. And he's a proper writer. He works in Hollywood and that's what he does for a living. And he was going to sort of be the writer. We were going back and forth about, well, I should say this, as far as a business pursuit is concerned, that's why we chose the genre we did. Because horror, and you and you could say it's not really a horror movie. I think of it more of as a suspense thriller mystery. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, those sort of genres can survive internationally without star power. Because yeah. we didn't have the budget to obviously have any named actors involved. And also scary is far more universal than funny. So what's scary here is scary there, which is not so true for for comedy. It's more applicable too for a for an audience that isn't necessarily invested in skydiving. You know, like when yes. when a when a wolfo for when a wolfo looks at skydiving or thinks about the idea of skydiving, there it's generally a scary thing, right? And so then you add that extra layer of horror on top of it yeah. that is not yeah. strictly skydiving. Like that's to it. That you is get it? Uh, fair. And that's a good point. Uh, so it wasn't clear in the beginning what the story was going to be. Originally, we had this kind of weird Hills Have Eyes story <laughs> of some, uh, landing off and like, and I don't know. I don't even remember. <laughs> it, it was, it wasn't good. Uh, okay. And, um, well, let me rephrase that. It, it, Hans ended up needing to leave and take a job in South Africa for like three months. And Chris and I were all like, oh man, we were just getting some momentum going. And he was yeah. like, yeah, but whatever, you guys are talented. You can, you know, we kind of got a little bit of a framework here. Why don't you write it? I'll get back. I'll polish it up and we'll be in good shape. And I'm like, all right, we'll try. Okay. So he leaves. Chris and I, who, who, who since we had since moved in together, we, we tried and we had a, we had a decent first act i felt like but then it just went downhill fast <laughs> it was <laughs> it was not good uh and it was difficult to keep skydiving alive through the story mm -hmm. you know we had skydiving in the beginning and it all made sense and it wasn't trite and it wasn't forced but then it by we couldn't keep skydiving alive and anyway yeah hans gets back and we're like embarrassed, like pushing it across the table. Like, here's what we did. <laughs> and he takes it. He's like, I don't want to watch this movie. I'm like, yeah, I don't want to watch this movie either. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, back to the drawing board. And he posed the question to us. Well, what would happen if you guys were on a skydive together and, and one of you just disappeared? And I said, oh, I don't know, I guess you would do a double take and you would question what you just saw. You'd be looking up like, did he just have a premature deployment and I somehow missed it or what, what just happened? And you'd question your own recollection and you'd land and not know how to even explain what happened. And, you know, just talked it all through. And we're like, we're all like, we're like, okay, well, that's an interesting idea. And then meet Chris and I ask him, so, so where did he go? What happened? And he's like, I don't know. But 
I'll bet everyone watching will stick around to the end of the movie to find out the answer. Yep. And I'm like, ah, good point. So we wrapped the idea or the plot of Hex around that question and that idea. And um, so that's its that's its origin tale. And I'll. I mean, it's just a personal question. I'm like, it's a it's a topic that I am really interested in. Um, it's kind of what you talked about, like the triangle of progression, right? Like, what are you willing to sacrifice to try and get your content made or your your ideas made or turned into? I think one of my huge goals is just as a as a skydiver is to be a, the best video flyer, the most creative video flyer that I can be. Um, I think that is like one of the the biggest goals for myself. Um, I am an artist by trade. It's what I've been trained to do beyond the world of skydiving. Um, it's just not brought me the same type of passion that skydiving has. And if I can combine the type, the two together, like that's when I feel like I would be truly excited about what it was I was doing, you know? Um, and throughout the years, as my video flying has progressed and I have allowed more and more creativity to kind of blend with it. Um, I have learned the ins and outs of like editing, shooting, camera work, like, you know, lighting, all the, all the things I've just learned it as I go trial and error. Um, but the ideas have also developed as I've gone to as well. Like what what am I capable of doing? How can I make this idea work? Uh, what is within my budget, you know, to throw at this project? Um, how can I make it more accessible? But the ideas are getting bigger and bigger and bigger and my resources are getting smaller and smaller as I go or just not quite matching like the pace of how big the ideas are getting. Um, so it's interesting to talk to someone who's actually done it, who it has worked within the realm that I want to be in at some point. Um, it's very exciting to hear it. So at, at some point, if you like the way this episode comes out later on, at some point, I would love to talk more in depth specifically about that project uh, because it's very, very, very interesting and very exciting for someone like me. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's a puzzle just like anything else. I mean, and um, I can already tell you, I'm, I'm happy to do it because I, it's, it's fun to reflect on the last 10 years and what we were thinking when it started and mm -hmm. the stresses of the middle, you know, it's, it's funny. It's like, as the filmmakers, we experience the same arc that your archetypal protagonist experiences you know mm -hmm. in the middle of editing when you're out of money and not don't know how you're going to finish it you're you're in the valley of darkness you know like <laughs> trying to aha find the answer to lead your project out of the valley of darkness into the light and finish yeah. you know what i mean it's it's so funny like how the uh the life imitates the art but um but yeah, for sure, I'm, I'm, I'd be stoked to, to talk about it because there are, you know, we went into it with uh, with eyes as wide open as you could hope to have. We uh -huh. were both, uh, you know, he he talking about Chris had a 20 year career in the industry with a lot of artistic background. I have a lot of artistic background. It was not a mystery to us how much work this was going to require but even with 
all that history, it still surprises you. You're just like, mm-hmm. my God, this is just an overwhelming amount of, of things to do, you know? And, and Chris, bless his heart, like we were hoping to take the crowdfund money and pay a post-production house to do much better visual effects than we were capable of doing. Mm-hmm. And we raised what we thought was a pretty good amount of money. Like we were really stoked. Like the community really came to our aid and we raised what we thought was a lot of money. And then we got the quote and it was well into six figures. And we're like, well, that's not going to work. So, so what do we do? It's like, okay, Chris, you're going to, you know, basically buy your groceries with this money we raised and you're going to go to school to learn how to do all the things you already <laughs> sort of know how to do, but now you got to learn how to do them better Yeah, because that's, that's what we're up against. Cause, yep. uh, and that's what he did. And he's like a genius. So, you know, he was able to improve upon his already foundational knowledge in the realm of visual effects and stuff and get, all the all the explosions and all the fire and everything in the movie to a place that's pretty darn reasonable for a, okay. for a micro budget for a micro budget movie you know and it's really you know it's 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 five projects really it's it's the pre-production or it's the writing it's the pre-production it's the it's the production the post-production and then the selling of the movie it's really five projects yeah that any one of which is a lot of work mm-hmm. and then you do them sequentially and it's like good lord Let's just get this thing over the finish line. I feel yeah. like 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 DiCaprio and the Revenant, <laughs> like <laughs> crossing the finish line, just mauled by life. <laughs> yeah, but but we got it there, and it's you know I'm super proud of it. I've always I've always had this idea of um, trying to take the hardcore Henry route. Have you ever seen that movie? Hardcore Henry, no. It's all it's the it's the movie that was shot from a first person shooter point of view. Yeah. So the reason that movie got made was because there was a very successful short, short film, like a 10 minute short film um, based around the same idea where it was this guy who has to take out this entire crew, like this entire building, essentially, of assassins. Right. Um, And the short was so successful that someone gave them the money to make the actual short, like the actual film, the feature length film. Right. Um, So I've always wondered if that was something that was more accessible for me, like creating a really, really good, solid, like well done, really awesome short film, like a 10, 15 minute short film, put it out there, see if it takes off and then potentially, you know, like segue into something a little bigger. But I guess, I don't know. It's. I think, I think that (laughs) is the prudent route for sure. I mean, we had, you know, we thought we had, the money to see it through to the end and you know we only needed to realize we needed to do that crowdfund Mm -hmm. later on like like i said but most people don't have that luxury uh and as you'd imagine if we did it again today man we would fix so many things (laughs) it it, it, it would be like so much better (laughs) That's, I mean, that's like uh, the curse of being an artist is you're never, you're never happy with what you absolutely. put out. Absolutely. And, and, and it's like when we showed, when we finally had an opportunity to show the actors the movie, it was years later, right? Yeah. And they're like, wow, I'm, I'm such a better actor now. 
Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, of course you are. You should, you should be, <laughs> you should be, if you're not, <laughs> like, that'd yeah. be more concerning. Exactly. So, y- you know, it's, so that's not surprising, but what, what would have, had we gone about things differently, like say we went that route and we made a short version of it and then someone wanted to finance it to do it on a bigger scale, like the things we would have learned in making the short version would have translated. And then, you know, you'd still be, you'd still be here years later saying, oh, I would do X, Y, and Z differently. That's never going to change, but maybe the, uh, increments of improvement would be would be less you know like anytime you're doing something and i i mentioned this this in the context of skydiving all the time it's like when you're first learning something your increments of improvement are like leaps and bounds and as you get better at something it's like really difficult to get this much better yep (laughs) uh and the same is true obviously in any artistic pursuit so anyway i'm talking in circles here (laughs) but if you have the opportunity to do a short version of a, of an idea you have i think that's invaluable i would push you in that direction for sure yeah well cool we're going to switch though because we can talk about this endlessly and it would totally change uh <laughs> the tone of this episode um let's talk about how let's talk about this thing you mentioned about how your career has kind of changed or life lessons i guess like how has this career that you've chosen changed the trajectory of your life i guess uh you spoke about life lessons, um, like some of the more important things that this lifestyle has taught you, like how those life life lessons crisscross between your skydiving career and like regular life, um, that sort of thing. I guess I've never used my degree in a formal sense, but my degree is in sociology. So I feel like I use my degree every day, mm-hmm. just observing the culture of skydiving, culture at large mm-hmm. and how skydiving does better than the world at large in a lot of things and ask myself why why that is <laughs> uh there's a lot to be said about keeping uh you know and you can only do this if you have the goals that we keep referencing but when you show a determination to help yourself people are going to want to help you and we're not, you know, none of us can do any of this alone. Mm-hmm. And when you demonstrate a passion that's contagious and other people want to be passionate on your behalf, and that's where you, that's where opportunity comes from. Uh, and if you all the while are treating people the right way, that's coming back to you tenfold. And and I never really thought any of that stuff was very hard. <laughs> so it surprises me when people get themselves in trouble by way of just being a jerk or, you know, or worse. Uh, so I don't know. I'm just thinking out loud here because I'm not really a- sure what direction no. I want to take this. But um, you were talking about like life lessons. And I think, you know, all that stuff can aid a skydiving career as easily as it can uh, aid you out in the real world. I think you did say something out there that makes you, it makes you wonder 
a lot of a lot of the things that the life lessons that we learn, right? The life lessons, something that you consider a life lesson, right? Like the stuff that is on like an Instagram meme or, you know, something silly like that. Those are all things that we can learn within the world of skydiving without being really aware of it, I think. And you learn them faster. I mean, you stop me if you think this is bullshit. Uh, <laughs> you can learn them faster and more pointedly than you would in the real world. And I think it's because this community nationwide has a tendency to be more open and more real with the people that are that that are involved. I think the relationships that we can make within the worlds of skydiving are so much different than like your everyday woofo to woofo relationship. They're not as open. They're not as real. They're not as forward, you know, so it offers you up an opportunity within this community to learn those lessons a lot faster and a lot harder for lack of a better word, um, a lot quicker, uh, than you would just like in an everyday, you know, sense if you didn't skydive, you know, I do know. And I don't think that's bullshit at all. I okay. think it's all spot on. <laughs> What's next for you? What's next on the agenda? Oh man. What, do you, you know what are you what? working on right like, now? We just mapped out between Matt, myself, Amy and Sarah. We just mapped out through April, 2025, basically. Holy shit. <laughs> You're on like Marvel level phase four or something right now. Okay. Well, between, between, uh, the head up record and all the warm up for that, the echelon events, um, an Abu Dhabi tunnel trip. I got the two African boogies in the first part of the year, Seychelles and South Africa. I'm mo do most of my work is in Arizona right now. So I come home for two weeks and I hang, I hang out in Nelson or in my house for two weeks. I go back to Arizona to, for team training too, for work and team training in Arizona and back home work in team training in Arizona and back home. And these events are going to start their course and then the boogies. So I'll be, I'll be quite busy through all of 24 into the beginning of 25. Dang. That's wild. Where do you hope to take events like Echelon in the future? Just like kind of building off the same idea, making it bigger and bigger and bigger or changing up the types of uh, formations you're building. There's no long-term plan as far as that's concerned. We just gauge our success on the previous event, decide if that's something we want to continue to evolve or do we want to try something else entirely? Could go, we could go any direction. Okay. I feel like we've had success and people are jazzed on what we're doing. And as long as we can figure out ways to keep it relatively safe. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, then that's probably the path we're looking down but you never know interesting uh andy like i've that's all i've got for you right now right now being the keyword uh i hope that at some point you might join me for another episode somewhere in the future where you can fit it in um and we can talk a little bit more about the creative side of skydiving because i feel like that would be a very interesting episode Thank you for for participating in this and thank you for like donating your time to this. Um, I wish I had more to offer you in return. <laughs> uh, no, not at all. My pleasure. This has been great.
and I would love, yeah, the creative side of thing. Yeah, we could eat up another hour just just talking about that. Yeah, <laughs> uh, we could. I could talk at great length and ask a ton of questions um, about about that particular topic. I feel like that's one one area of skydiving for me, or one whole section of my brain powered uh, that I don't get to use very often because there's not as many like-minded folks on the drop zones that I'm around on a regular basis. So uh, I would love to talk more at, and at great length about, you know, creative ideas, uh, projects you've worked on, that kind of stuff. So, okay. That being said, I feel like I've learned a ton just about you as an individual and, and it's really cool listening to uh, your story, like not to be too much of like a, a fanboy or a fangirl right now, but uh, your name has consistently come up throughout the 14 years that I've been skydiving. Um, and it's just, it's like one of those names that pops up in the background, you know, of like, oh yeah, he organized this event. He was on this record, you know, like it's this, this is his brainchild. This is his, you know, idea. So it's pretty cool listening to you talk about all of these details that would normally get swept under the rug, you know, when someone talks about you in conversation. Um, it is very cool. It's very exciting. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me about it. No, it's kind of you to say. And uh, yeah, no, no, you don't have to thank me. I'm happy to be here. I, I reached out to you. I was like, hey, I like that. Your show was cool. I want to I want to be on your show. Not going to so, lie. Yeah. The reason I had not or like uh, Josh had sent me a screenshot of your response to like about about the echelon. And I was like, oh, OK, well, maybe I'll maybe I'll reach out when I've like calmed down a bit, you know, and then 10 <laughs> minutes later, I got the I got the text message and I was like, Josh, <laughs> he messaged. It's fine. <laughs> anyway. Uh, yes, I appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, that being said, um, for anyone that's tuning in, thank you for listening. Tune in next time. Uh, blue skies, safe jumps. Thank you. Mm -hmm.